This is Can I Laugh on Your Shoulder. Hey, welcome to Can I Laugh on Your Shoulder. I'm Molly Stillman, and this is a podcast where I get to sit down with a different guest each week and have raw, funny, often brutally honest conversations about the things that matter most, faith, business, life, and everything in between, where we each learn how to be good stewards of the things we've been entrusted with, even our stories, and how we can use those things to serve others and leave our families, our friendships, and our communities a little better than we found them. I want to create a space where people are unafraid to be themselves and unafraid to ask the questions the rest of us are thinking. My goal is to make you laugh, cry, and laugh till you cry. My guest this week is Greg Jones, the president of Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. He took the position in June of 2021, and he has quickly become known as a hope dealer across the campus. Their motto has become, let hope abound. He is known as a leader and strategist whose creative engagement has helped institutions across the world and in local communities create transformational resource models. He's passionate about reshaping cultures within and across organizations, and he coined the term traditioned innovation to capture how he reframes complex challenges to seize significant opportunities. He's known for an entrepreneurial mindset, as well as emphasis on character and purpose in higher education, which he emphasizes in his leadership at Belmont. Across campus, he's either known as Greg or President Pop Pop, which he tells the story about in this episode. And I want to tell you that I just adore him. I think he is a phenomenal human being and he is a phenomenal leader. And I really love how Belmont University is becoming this university that is really setting a different standard for developing partnerships across the globe, you know, everything from solutions to poverty and just in general, inspiring hope and purpose among today's young people and in the business community and in the academia world. Greg is incredible. And I really love his story, even though he may or may not have been at Duke University for a while. But we talk about that, how how we can get past that. (laughs) Um, But we really had such a great conversation. I know that you're going to be inspired and encouraged. So without further ado, on to my conversation with Greg Jones. Well, I am so excited about today's guest, Greg Jones. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you for the invitation. It's a great joy to be with you. And I just got to I got to put my cards on the table right here at the beginning, Greg. Okay, I am a Carolina fan and I know that you have some ties to the other university that is down eight miles down the road. Uh (laughs) I just have to say I had a better Saturday than you did. Yeah, but you know what? Here's the thing. Here's the thing, Greg. Okay, is that for the rest of time, I can say, how did Coach K's last two games go against Carolina? How did they go? I just would like to revisit that. There is that. (laughs) I know. but My my favorite Coach K line of all time was when he said, the only difference between Duke and UNC is Duke doesn't have a great university eight miles away. Uh, (laughs) Oh, that's a good line. That is a good line. Um, Well, and it's funny because I, I mean, we live in Durham. And so, I mean, we live... I say we live in Durham. We have a Durham address. We don't live in Durham. We live in the country. Um, but, Where do you live? Um, so we live in kind of the rural buffer area. We're in a really weird area where we're like, 
the country. I mean, it's it's North Durham, if that makes okay. sense. But it's sure. yeah. So we're closer to Hills and Chapel Hill and Durham. At different yeah. Points in yeah. Time. We're closer to Hillsboro than we gotcha. are. Durham, even though, you know, but um, but we love this area. And, you know, we've lived here for many years, but my husband went to Carolina. I didn't go to Carolina. So um, but when I first moved to North Carolina, pretty much one of my first jobs was working for WCHL, which was the local radio station sure. in Chapel Hill. And so I would cover the games. And, and then, of course, I met my husband and who went to Carolina. And uh, needless to say, we're, we're Carolina fans in this house. But that's OK. You know what? This is this is called uh, the, the grace. It's, it's called grace right here. <laughs> <laughs> this is the, the Lord unites people of all walks. <laughs> Some of my favorite friends are, Cal- are Carolina fans. I know. Uh, and it's funny because a couple of my best friends are huge Duke fans. So we just we just don't talk on Duke Carolina game nights. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I am really excited to know just all of your background. You are currently uh, the president of Belmont University over in Tennessee. And I know you have a background in divinity. You were you know, dean of the divinity school at Duke for years. And I'm just really curious to hear the Greg 101 because I'm really interested to know how an ordained minister and former Duke uh, Divinity School dean becomes the president of Belmont University. So uh, give us the Greg 101. So tell us who you are, what you do, and how you got to where you are. Well, thanks. I'm uh, uh, Greg Jones and president of Belmont for the last year and a half. I come from a family of preachers. So when people ask me why I went into the ministry, I said, it's a family business. I didn't know I had a choice. Uh, And uh, along the way, I uh, also became uh, an academic and a teacher. And so I consider myself a lifelong educator. I taught at Loyola College in Baltimore, now Loyola University, for nine years, and then came back to Duke as uh, Dean of the Divinity School. Along the way, I also discovered I have a passion for innovation and entrepreneurship. Uh, unnerved my provost when I scored the highest among all trustees and uh, and deans on uh, tendency toward innovation. Uh, that was a little unnerving for him, but uh, that's kind of the culture uh, for me, and I've done a lot of different things, mostly in education. And... Uh, uh, about uh, two and a half years ago, got a call asking if I'd be interested in considering Belmont, a university that has grown a lot over the last 20 years with a real passion for innovation and an entrepreneurial mindset. It just seemed like a really good fit, both Belmont's trajectory and momentum and Nashville as a really dynamic growing city. Yeah. And Belmont's had a long history of focus on character, purpose, and an entrepreneurial mindset. And uh, those are all passions of mine. And so it felt like uh, perhaps a, a calling for uh, this last uh, period of time of my active vocation. And it's been a been a great fit to uh, to be in Nashville. I actually was born in Nashville, which gives me a lot of street cred, though we moved from here when I was six months old. So yeah. you know, it's kind of a weird dynamic that in Nashville, they give you credit because you were born here. If you moved here at when you were two and have lived here the rest of your life, you don't get nearly as much credit as I do. And I've now barely lived here two years. Oh, I love it. That's hilarious. Uh, yeah, it's like you're like, I got I could show my birth certificate. OK, my birth certificate says I was born in Nashville. I may have moved away when I was a baby. I don't That's remember right. anything about it. But <laughs> That's right. And now two quirky things. Literally outside my window of my office is a red brick apartment building that my parents lived in uh, when my brother and sister were born. Wow. They bought a little house in Nashville by the time I was born. And then I discovered after my appointment was announced that my paternal grandmother actually went to Ward Belmont uh, College 
our predecessor institution a hundred years ago this year. Wow. Wow. So it felt like somehow I was destined to be here. Yeah. Yeah. That is a really cool story. Uh, I'll be honest. It's um, I. So I love Nashville. Um, big fan of Nashville. Uh, the food in Nashville. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. So I was actually music's pretty good too. Yeah. The mu- music's, you know, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, but it's, it's funny because a couple of months ago I, uh, was traveling to Nashville. I was meeting actually with my, my book publisher who's based out of Nashville and I was, um, just staying downtown and I was trying to, you know, kind of keep my, my trip expenses down and I ate literally every meal at the Nashville food hall in downtown Nashville. But I'm telling you, it's like a, I mean, I'm assuming you've been there. If you haven't been there, you should go. Oh, no, it's oh, awesome. It's like the fanciest food court I've ever been to, but with the most delicious restaurants. I ate somewhere different every single meal and had, I was, anyway, my mind was blown that you could have these like gourmet, like better than anything I've eaten probably anywhere else in what is a glorified food court. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Yeah. So it's I'm amazing. just, and you were there probably with about 10 million other people. Well, so I traveled during the week. So it actually wasn't too bad. Uh, Cause I think I was there on like a the Monday. Weekend is terrible. Oh yeah. I bet. I can only imagine. So, and, and let's just say the bachelorette parties on a Tuesday, there was bachelorette parties on a Tuesday. It's like, what are y'all yeah. doing? Do y'all have yeah. jobs? <laughs> Nash Vegas, we call it sometimes. Nash Vegas. Um, well, I, yeah, I love Nashville. And I remember the first time I actually even probably heard of Belmont University was when they had the presidential debate. When, when was that? Was like, was that like 08 or was that 12? 08, and then we did it again yeah. in 2020. In the that's midst of right. That's right. We've that's done right. it twice. Yeah. Um, so I feel like that kind of like put Belmont on the map. Um, yeah. But I am so curious. Uh, I think it's really interesting. Like what do you know kind of how they even, you know, because I'm, I'm just sitting here thinking about like a pretty, you know, well-known big university. I mean, you've hosted two presidential debates, so it's pretty well-known. And you're the the. De- Dean of the Divinity School at Duke. What makes Belmont go? We should talk to this guy. Like, <laughs> that's the president. I mean, how well, did that? Maybe happen? delirium. Maybe delirium on their part. Uh, actually, there's a. It's an interesting story. So I had been to Baylor uh, for a brief period of time and served as executive vice president and provost. So I was kind of known in the broader Christian higher education world. A yeah. Bit. But. Um, it's one of those odd uh, circumstances that 25 years ago, I was uh, giving, uh, doing a video in Nashville and there was a reception and a guy came up to me and said, uh, you know, do you know my brother-in-law who I knew from the world of divinity schools? And we started talking and I told him, he asked, you know, what I like to do. And my wife and I had been leading in, uh, in Charlotte uh, some weekends around Christian faith and fiction and film where we'd watch a movie, read a novel, and draw together themes about forgiveness and faith and other mm. kinds of things. He said, would you ever do it in Nashville? And so I said, well, if you could find a venue and pull together a group of couples or lay people, uh, we'd be glad to do it. So we ended up doing that for nine years. And unbeknownst to me, it turns out that uh, 
uh, about uh, six or seven members of the board of trustees at Belmont were in that group. And so they heard me and uh, gotten to know Susan, who's uh, way better than I am. And uh, so they uh, they had kind of gotten to know us. And so evidently they'd started talking about whenever my predecessor retired, maybe they ought to see if I'd be interested. So, you know, I had a, I, I've had a background uh, in uh, in higher education and in leadership kinds of issues. And so yeah. that uh, that inspired them to inquire. And through the conversations, they became interested. I became interested. Susan sensed it was a calling. And uh, here we are. I love that story. So one of the things that you're kind of known for around campus is uh, every, you want the students to call you Greg, which I just love. Um, but you're you're really known for this theme of letting hope abound. And I would you unpack that for us? Like where, you know, what stems from that? And, and what does that look like on a practical everyday level on a college campus? Sure. Well, um, I was becoming president, uh, you know, in the midst of COVID and in the midst of uh, uh, George Floyd and all sorts of other things. And so, you know, I wanted us to not just be in a reactive mode as we were thinking about my inaugural year and my inauguration. So we we settled on this phrase, let hope abound, because I wanted something forward looking. I wanted something that was, you know, inspiring. And, and the word hope is really important because it's not optimism. Optimism is just, hey, everything's going well, mm. we're getting better and better. And nobody felt like that in a kind of purely human way. Hope orients us more toward the future and a sense of both taking account of the realities of the present and yet believing that there's something beyond that. For us at Belmont, that would be God. Uh, and so that notion that we could have that. And then my wife suggested the term abound because it's a great image in the Bible of uh, God abounding in steadfast love. And, and it's it's got that kind of um, significance where it conveys even the word sounds energizing. Yeah. You know, this is abounding. And uh, so we wanted something that would, would say that. And then the word let became kind of permission giving. Hmm. It was like, let hope abound. You can go. Let's try it. And uh, we we initially thought it'd just be for the inaugural year and for my inauguration. Well, it really caught hold because I think people were yearning for something right. to believe in. You know, during the pandemic and during so much other uh, turmoil, I'd, I'd been saying that uh, the future didn't seem what it used to seem. And that a lot of people were just not sure they, there was a reason for hope. And so that spirit became really significant. For my inauguration, uh, some alums, including Melinda Doolittle, a former uh, American Idol finalist, wrote a song uh, called Let Hope Abound that was sung at my inauguration. It's an incredibly inspiring song. And so, you know, I I joke that when I was at Duke, you know, if I wrote an essay uh, about an idea, eight people might read it, and that would include my family, most of whom would lie about whether (laughs) they read it. You know, I came to Belmont, we had a phrase, and there have been four songs written uh, set to let hope abound. And uh, it's it and that music carries something really powerful. And what we discovered was that it wasn't just the inaugural year that it's actually become a tagline that people are really holding on to. I was in downtown Nashville at a reception and a guy came over to me and he said, you're the new president of Belmont. And I said, yeah. And, you know, I always brace myself when somebody says that because <laughs> usually it's followed with, you know, why didn't you admit my child or, you know, the food in the cafeteria is terrible or some other complaint. And he, he said, you're the new president of Belmont. I said, yeah. And then he said, y'all are the hope people. Mm. And I thought, oh, I'll take that. That's a, you know, I thought 
that's a good thing to be known for. Yeah. Yeah. That I love the way that that has kind of just caught on and inspired so many other things. And, you know, you said something at the beginning when you were kind of talking about your, your journey and how, you know, here you were, you grew up in this family of preachers, and you kind of found your way into academia. And, uh, but while also, you know, maintaining your your kind of connection to um, faith and all that kind of stuff, which is obviously, a, I feel like even a whole other conversation of faith in academia. Um, but you talked about how you had this propensity towards innovation. And I think that's really interesting and and what that has looked like on a practical level. And so I, I don't even know how to phrase this question because I'm, I'm just curious, like how has this theme of reigniting hope and letting hope abound on campus? And, and it seems like it's spilling out into the Nashville area. Um, and I know that you guys are even, you know, you know, cultivating partnerships um, across the globe, uh, you know, it, with the themes of, of hope and purpose. How does that mesh up with innovation? And, and how have you kind of almost married the two things? That's a great question. I, I would say uh, hope and purpose uh, are both oriented toward the future. And so is innovation. And uh, what, I, what I really think is important about them all is they're also connected to the past. So I coined a term uh, that I call traditioned innovation to say that the best innovation draws on the best of the past. Mm. Uh, so uh, Yaroslav Pelikan, the great historian at Yale, uh, put it this way. He said, traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Mm. And we want tradition we need to get rid of traditionalism, but we want tradition that is what carries us forward. I think of it in terms of musical improvisation. And it's that sense that, you know, jazz musicians don't make stuff up. They're always drawing on the past, listening to each other in the present to enable something beautiful in the future. And that's what I really think innovation is about. It's connected similarly to hope because it's oriented toward the future and that sense of purpose and having a North Star and it also takes account of the brokenness of the past and the and the realities of the present. So you're going to draw from the best of what's brought us from the past and the present, acknowledge the realities, and then innovate to provide a more life-giving future. And, you know, I, I had written a couple of books uh, over the years and written other essays around the theme of forgiveness. And I'd always thought, you know, forgiveness would lead to new life. And what I discovered was leaning into innovation also helps to heal the past by drawing out the best and, and overcoming uh, the worst. And so that notion of leaning into innovation, I think, is really powerful. And I've learned that from some extraordinary uh, people uh, who've been uh, kind of paradigms of hope, or as Carlos Whitaker talks about it, yeah. uh, about being hope dealers. Yeah. And, uh, that's, you know, what I think the best innovators are. They're people who are, they're people who are hope dealers and change the equilibrium and make life better for others. Mm. What is one of the ways that you have begun to, to put this into motion? You know, what are some of the things that I love that? What, what did you, how did you coin it? Traditional Traditioned innovation. Traditioned innovation. Um, yeah. So what are some of the, the things that you have been doing to, to work towards that? 
Well, part of what we've done um, at Belmont is to actually tell the stories of some extraordinary people in our past. Belmont was actually, our predecessor institution was founded in 1890 by two women school teachers from Philadelphia. <laughs> and, you know, who in their right mind as a woman thinks, oh, let's start a college yeah. in 1890, you know. But here are these two women who did that, and it's just been incredible. And we we stand on the shoulders of some extraordinary uh, people who gave and uh, led at, at Belmont, not only, you know, presidents and deans, but it's also been, I love to talk about uh, our former women's basketball coach who's turning 80 this month, Betty Wiseman, uh, and the men's basketball coach, Rick Bird. They've been here at Belmont for decades, and they embody so much of the goodness of this place and have helped it grow in really dynamic ways. And so I wanna tell stories about uh, that where people remember that whatever we grow, however we grow and whatever we develop in clarity of purpose and innovation is rooted in the goodness of people who've gone before us and that we uh, stand on their shoulders. And so what we've done, I did it both as part of the inaugural week and then we did it this past fall. I wanted to capture some of the magic of inaugural week my first year only now without Susan and me as the focus of attention. And so we, we've repurposed that as a hope summit uh, that we called, which brings people from within the campus, the Nashville area, and more broadly. Uh, and this time, uh, this hope summit last fall was around creativity and innovation to help regions thrive. And so it was focused around some of those themes. And we, we do some of that as, as storytelling and, and content, and then we um, have created what for students and, and the community, what we call a day to dream. Hmm. And it's a day where we cancel classes. And my inaugural week, we put a Ferris wheel out on the lawn. <laughs> That's awesome. And this year, we put a zip line. And, uh, you know, it was a day to take a deep breath, you know, midway through the semester, come together as a community, have fun and uh, come together. And, you know, so it's it's all part of a hope summit. So hope is the theme. And there's a sense that we need to be nurturing imagination and recovering that bigger uh, sense of who we are and getting clear about our North Star, our purpose, so that we can actually, as an institution, dream better dreams. Well, I really am encouraged to hear that. And because, you know, as I'm sitting here and I'm listening to you talk about this, it's it has suddenly kind of hit me and I don't even think that I, I didn't even think I would, we would talk about this uh, before, but I think this is an important topic because like you alluded to, you know, in our, you know, when you came into this position, you know, we're in the midst of the pandemic and George Floyd and just so many things going on that people began to feel hopeless. And, I don't think it's a topic that we can talk about enough is is the the feeling of hopelessness that a lot of people feel. But I think the thing that I uniquely that you are in a position of is impacting young adults in this area. And yeah. the reality is is whether we want to talk about it or not, um the reality is is that teenagers and young adults suffered greatly during this you pandemic. Heard. And yeah. I mean, just at, you know, down the road at, at Carolina, um, the amount of suicides that have occurred from students yeah. in the last few years, I mean, it has greatly increased. Um, the, the rate of, and I don't know the exact statistics and numbers and things like that, but there's, the, I mean, just anecdotally, and, and I've obviously, obviously read some stuff about it is kind of post-pandemic or 
you know, a couple years, you know, we're what, three years into this thing, the the rate of anxiety and depression and yep. suicidal ideation in in people in general has increased greatly. But in teenagers and young adults, it is just skyrocketed. And yes, the pandemic is part of that. I, I believe that there's also should we should have conversations as well about social media and the impact that social media and technology has had on that as well. But you are in a really unique position because that you are directly impacting a, a segment of the population that is struggling. That is struggling. Yeah. And I, I think about, you know, what life was like. So this is my 20 year uh, high school graduation year. <laughs> so, um, you know, and so I went to college 20 years ago. And I think about, I mean, Facebook came around when I was like a junior in college, I think. But I mean, I didn't have an iPhone. I didn't have a smartphone. Like I had a Nokia and like a Motorola <laughs> Razor, you know, there was no, there was no social media when I was in college. There was, um, you know, we still used landlines uh, to communicate with our friends. And so a lot has happened in 20 years. And, and so I, I can't imagine what what these kids are facing. And I, I don't want it to sound like, ah, these kids these days. <laughs> um, but, but reality is, is, is they're facing a, just a very different climate and culture than we are. And so I, I don't know, I'm just as you were talking, I was I started thinking about that is you have this really unique opportunity. And um, ha have you been conscious of that? And, um, and I love that, like that day to dream and, and things like that. But I, I'm curious, you're in your conversations with students. Yeah. What has that looked like? How has that kind of challenged you inspired you encouraged you all those things? Yeah, well, it's a it's a great question. It's, it's a really serious set of issues. Right. Uh, the reality, if you look at the statistics nationwide, the, the five years before the pandemic or even the seven years, the, the rise in loneliness, anxiety, depression, suicide ideation uh, among high school students and college students was already, you know, the only reason it didn't look like a dangerous cliff uh, and it was just a kind of a steep ski run was how they did the X and Y axis. Right. But by any measure, it was already growing. Yeah. And then, you know, for the pandemic to hit. And I had a friend, I have a friend who said to me, you know, the people who the pandemic hit the hardest were seven to 11 year olds and 17 to 22 year olds. And those were because those are really pivotal ages when seven to 11 year olds are just reaching adolescence and they're trying to figure out who they are. And 17 to 21 year olds just becoming adults and kind of setting out on their own, trying to figure out now who they are as an adult. And those were precisely the times you need most interaction. And so what we did was isolate people and yeah. uh, keep them from each other. And so all of those mental health issues just intensified and multiplied. And uh, I've been mindful of that. We've seen our faculty talks a lot about it, that, uh, uh, that there are a lot more presenting issues that they need to pay attention to. And, you know, the reality is we can't We've increased our, our mental health services, but if you're just doing it in a reactive mode, you can't hire enough people. You can't provide enough things to treat the symptoms. And so we have exactly. to get to the deeper, the deeper issues. And that's part of what we've been talking about is I, I remember E.M. Forster's famous line, only connect. Hmm. And I think a lot about that because um, 
right before the pandemic, a year or so before, a guy named Johan Hari had written a book called Lost Connections. And it was about dealing with some of these mental health issues. And he was saying, we've gotten disconnected on multiple fronts. And so what, what I've been focused on is how do we try to ensure that all our students feel connected in a variety of ways, whether that's to a student group, to their professors, uh, to other kinds of activities, uh, you know, to musical opportunities. We have a campus that has tons of people who are either focusing on becoming musicians or uh, in the performing arts and how to see that as a community that can nurture that. Um, and so we've been spending a lot of time thinking about how to be proactive mm. in fostering connection and that sense of uh, of community. And that's where the kind of letting hope abound. I've talked about, you know, the importance for young adults of fostering unlikely friendships. And that may mean somebody from a different region of the country or a different race or uh, economic background. It's also fostering unlikely connections between artists and scientists or business people and social workers and, and discovering that sense of, of community. And part of the data dream is designed to, you know, um, not just uh, rest, come together mm. and have a good time and, you know, laugh and uh, do goofy things, you know, uh, for the day to dream. It was right around Halloween. And so uh, Susan and I dressed up in bear costumes and <laughs> wandered around campus, you know, and uh, it was fun, you know, to to just be seeing people in, in that light and fostering that sense of community uh, is part of what, uh, you know, I do encourage students to call me Greg, or I've also invited them to call me what my granddaughter calls me. My grandparent name is Pop Pop. And so when she found out I was becoming president, she said, uh, uh, she said, oh, President Pop Pop. Oh. And, you know, it, it's just, it, I was out on campus yesterday and some students called from across the lawn. They said, hey, President Pop Pop. And we all just started laughing. And I just thought, you know, that's a, it, it humanizes me. It takes me off of a kind of, ooh, there goes the president kind of uh, tone. I want to foster that sense of community. And, mm. you know, we've been talking a lot with students and faculty and staff about, you know, being joyful. Uh, and that doesn't mean everything's going your way. Right. Uh, you know, uh, when Paul's writing in the letter to the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. He's in prison. Yeah. Uh, and so I just say, you know, you can be a carrier uh, of that kind of joy. Or we've also talked about how students can be agents of hope to each other. Hmm. Uh, and that means that, you know, you can convey that to someone else. And you never know what they're going through that particular day. And, uh, you know, I've just been walking through a, a period with a dear friend who whose wife died at a young age, and it's been heavy and burdensome. And then there have been people, you know, who've just played a practical joke on me or something. It's just been such a gift and uh, in the midst of that. So we can be that for each other if we're intentional about it. And that's that sense of being an agent of hope or an agent of joy in that sort of way. Mm, that's so good. What you were saying reminded me of there's a, a a Desmond Tutu quote that I have used and referenced to a lot of things over the years. Um, and it's something to the effect of uh, there comes a point when we need to stop pulling people out of the river. We need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. And yeah. I feel like that that's so much of what you're doing is this uh, just being really intentional about being ahead of this and addressing the reality of what what people are facing and 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 yeah. you know and the reality is too is that none of this is new 
none of this is new. It's just amplified. Um, it's kind of, yeah. I think in a lot of ways, the pandemic just amplified what was rumbling beneath the surface. Um, and I mean, you can look all the way back into the, you know, into Genesis. And so people have been struggling for, since the beginning of time. And, yep. <laughs> you know, and right. it's, it's not, it's nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. Uh, it's, it's just, we call it something different. And so, but I, I really applaud the way that you guys are are being proactive and and seeing, um, you know, looking at why people are falling in and, and trying to to keep them from falling in the river, so to speak. Yeah, I learned a lot. Uh, we have a, a wonderful organization in Nashville that's led by uh, a friend uh, and it's called Porter's Call. And it started a little over 20 years ago. He was doing counseling and he discovered that a lot of the people coming to him were musicians Hmm. uh, who had become famous. And in the process had, uh, you know, their marriages had fallen apart. They'd gotten involved with substance abuse of one sort or another. They'd had various other kinds of ways their life had hit the rocks. And uh, so they started doing things. And he then got some uh, a music publisher to, to sponsor uh, the request was to sponsor his artist just uh, to to go so there wasn't a cost. And he said, well, I'll do it, except the condition is you have to make it available to any artist, which was really generous. And so the, the folks at Porter's Call started doing that, working with people who are, who are having real issues. And then he realized, wouldn't it be better if we helped people deal with these with these questions before they become famous? Uh. And so it was moving upstream, as you were from your quote with Desmond Tutu. And so now they work with young people, including some of our students, on what's it like to have a marriage when you're out on the road as a musician? Yeah. What's it like? You know, Al says, uh, Al Andrews, the founder, says the human heart is not made for fame. No. And so how do you help people think about that before they, you know, uh, become famous? And that sense of moving upstream, to use your image, has been something that stayed with me a lot that I, I want our, our people while they're on campus, Susan and I now teach a course about purpose together. It's called What's Your Why? Mm. And we we thought we were going to talk a lot about purpose and having a North Star and uh, all those sorts of questions. What we discovered was we're spending a lot of time talking about relationships and who are your people. Uh, so, you know, the course is called What's Your Why? And one of the guests we had uh, one day said, well, you know, as important as what's your why is who's your why? Who are your people going to be that surround you and help keep you centered? And that's been an image that's really stayed with me because, you know, young adults are trying to figure out who are my people going to be, whether that's a, a spouse or uh, a close friend. But the, the question of who's your why has really reshaped my imagination. Mm, so good. All right, I want to transition just a little bit, and um, because there's something that I know that you guys are doing that I really want um, you to share this story. And you know, we kind of alluded to how Belmont, you know, had, you know, you're really trying to to let this theme of let hope abound really just trickle into everything, and you're developing a lot of partnerships. You know, cultivating, um, you know, enterprise solutions. Uh, you know all around the world. And, um, and one story in particular, and I don't know the whole story, that's why I'm going to ask you about it, um, is uh, from a guy by the name of Kim Tan. And, yeah. um, and how that has, uh, you know, really 
played this out and and how that has in, in a lot of ways too inspired the further development of these partnerships around the globe um so would you yeah. share that and what you guys are doing sure well kim is a is a friend we serve on a foundation board together and uh i just have huge admiration for him he's ethnically malaysian moved to england as a teenager and uh, has lived outside of london um he was an entrepreneur who uh, built a biotech company and sheep monoclonal antibodies, uh, which I've now told you about everything I know about that. <laughs> uh, sold the company and he was starting to work as a philanthropist and realized he could write checks the rest of his life and never move the needle on poverty. So he thought, maybe I should bring my best entrepreneurial mindset to address these questions. And so he started a project in South Africa, a game park on 50,000 acres of uh, degraded farmland, uh, created a hundred jobs for families, uh, helped to uh, regenerate the land and care for the animals. Uh, and so it had the, all these virtuous cycles and became a sustainable business. And he started developing projects uh, um, around the world. He, he does so what he calls social impact investing. And so it's to create sustainable businesses that also help solve major problems. My favorite example uh, of one that you just kind of go, oh, was uh, he uh, He has a project in the Philippines that gets women out of sex trafficking, trains them in digital photo editing for American real estate companies. Wow. So it helps solve a business problem for American real estate companies, you know, that want virtual tours for selling houses gets these women out of a problem, connects them back to their family, chains them in a job that's going to give them a, a really good life. And he's got all these stories and uh, they're uh, in, in multiple contexts. And he's created the Transformational Business Network. And out of our friendship, he asked if Belmont would be willing to be an academic partner and help both tell stories, stir the imagination and train people to become the, these kinds of uh, entrepreneurs and uh, and investors uh, to, to generate those opportunities. And so we've got a joint project uh, we're working on in Uganda, and we're also really focusing on storytelling uh, because, you know, when you hear these stories, it's kind of like, well, yeah, okay, sure, why not? But we don't know them. And I think particularly in the midst of the pandemic and goes back to the letting hope abound, um, you know, we've had what I call an, uh, an imagination deficit disorder. Mm. And we've had a hard time thinking imaginatively and with a sense of purpose about what opportunities are out there. And the storytelling, you know, many times what when, when you describe something, it's like, well, we could do that in our community. And there are these ways of just inspiring and, and energizing those possibilities. And so uh, we're working together on building out the network, telling the stories about the network, and then doing training educational sessions to help multiply uh, the impact of those kinds of uh, examples. And, you know, it's it, when I ask Kim about, you know, how many people he thinks he's helped pull out of poverty. Uh, and, and the ways he measures things, I mean, he says, well, I don't know, it's tens of thousands. Hmm. And that's just so encouraging. And, you know, one of the measures in their game park in South Africa is not just whether the people have a living wage, they actually measure the success of their work by how many of their employees are able to buy a home. Hmm. What they've discovered is that home ownership means you're much more likely to send your kids to uh, schools and higher education. So it has a much stronger multiplier 
impact. So it's not just do they have a job and are we paying them a living wage? It's are we paying them enough that they can buy a home that gives a sense of stability and hope for the future? And I want Belmont to be a platform that helps spread those stories and helps educate a, a younger generation to see the kind of difference they can make in creative ways. Wow. I'm curious, Does how does Belmont do that on like are you guys developing? Like, I'm curious, like, is there a program that, that students can be a part of? Is it a major? I don't even know. I mean, what that looks like on a practical well, level. We have, we have had a social entrepreneurship major at Belmont. We were the first uh, college in the country to have an undergraduate major in social entrepreneurship. It started a couple decades ago. Uh, and now we're We've developed a, an initiative called BASIC, the Belmont Accelerator for Social Innovation Collaboration. And that's bringing faculty from across different disciplines, working with students and community partners. And so we're doing it in Nashville, uh, in, our, in our backyard. One of the projects is right across the street for our, from us in Edge Hill. Another one's in Antioch, where there are a lot of immigrant and refugee families. Uh, and we're so we're working on that and trying to give students more uh, opportunities. Kim was... Uh, was one of the speakers at our Hope Summit. And so, you know, I just wanted people to see, you know, this guy who is, uh, you know, uh, he's about five foot four, uh, <laughs> maybe a hundred pounds sopping wet. So, you know, I'm posing figure and he just tells these stories. And it's like, I want to be like you, you know, mm -hmm. I, I want to do things like that. And so we're, we're looking now at how we can have students go on trips to see some of his projects in Africa or in Southeast Asia. Uh, we're, we're working on building out uh, his network in the United States and in South America. So we want to create a multiplier effect. It starts in Nashville, and we've got to build that out in, in partnerships. And we want to shine a light on stories of people doing this kind of work uh, locally, regionally, globally. Mm. That's amazing. And I mean, what better place to do this work than at a university when you have, uh, yeah. you know, some of the brightest minds and, uh, you know, and, and the the hope of the youth and and, you know, they're they're the innovators and they're the ones that are going to be coming behind um, your generation and my generation to to put these things into place. And so the more that we can inspire them to to think outside of themselves and um, and and make real lasting change. Uh, that's incredible. Indeed. We have a program at Belmont that we've had uh, called 100 Entrepreneurs that just celebrate graduates who are doing that kind of work already. We have some faculty members. We have a Hispanic faculty member, Jose Gonzalez, who started one of these projects in, Bal in, uh, in Nashville 20 years ago. And so we just want to shine a light on these people because I think you're right, an educational institution that inspires young people to imagine the kind of impact that they can have. Greg, this has been phenomenal. And I am really, really excited to see what you guys continue to do over the next, you know, five years, 10 years, 15 years. Um, and I'm just, I'm over here in Durham cheering you on. So <laughs> thank you. We really appreciate and appreciate all you do. And, uh, you know, let's let hope abound everywhere we can be, even at Carolina. Amen. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, now is the part of the show where we ask our last final questions. And, right. uh, the first one, Greg is what is the last thing that made you laugh? 
Last thing that made me laugh was a video from uh, one of my granddaughters that uh, was just so much fun. And she has such an inventive imagination. And when I get videos of uh, she's three years old and I, it just cracks me up and gives me joy. Uh. Grandparenting is is the best thing there is in the world. It's it's in fact the only thing in the world I've discovered that's not overrated. Oh, I love it. Well, I've got two kids of my own, and I would say that my dad, who is also Pop Pop, um, ah. Pop Pop would would say the same thing. And but he's so <laughs> funny. My dad is the kind of Pop Pop who uh, like he is very different in his pop popping than my my husband's parents are, um, my, you know, my husband's parents are, you know, very hands-on and like, I mean, my husband was an only child and, and things like that. Um, but my dad, my dad's also older. He was older when I was born. He was 41 when I was born. So he's 78 oh. now. And, um, and I remember one time he was, uh, he was watching the kids and, um, my husband and I came home from having a date and, uh, we walked in the house and my, son just vomited all over the floor and my dad just looks at me and goes already earned that merit badge we'll see ya and just <laughs> walks out of the house he's like all right bye we'll see you later <laughs> and uh like he's done that a couple times where like if my kids have had like an accident or something and then he'll just be like already earned that merit badge peace out that's a great line <laughs> i love it I know. So anyway, he's uh, but yeah, he's the best. So um, love it. Love it. Love it. OK. And then my second question is, what is the last thing that made you cry? Um, it was visiting a, a, a beloved friend uh, who is now in hospice care oh. and uh, just realizing the fragility of life and the goodness of, of his life and uh, realizing as I contemplate uh the the memorial service um he's the son-in-law of a former president of belmont and mm. it'll be a, a big community gathering at belmont and um the realization that of the impact that he's had in his life and how many people have loved him and the fragility and how you know how quickly uh life passes yeah. um it, when my wife said we need to go over there uh, I said, you're right. And we went and it was a treasured time, but uh, I wasn't dry eyed when I left. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I uh, was just having a conversation with a couple of women yesterday who had shared similar stories of of being with people, um, you know, in their final moments of life and just the sadness of it, the the realizing, again, the fragility of life, but then also the the sweetness of it and and what an honor and a privilege it is to be with somebody in that um and being able to further see our own humanity um you know because when you're with people in that you know in those moments you're suddenly not thinking about the political climate and all you know all of the things that everyone on the internet would like to make you think are the most important yeah that's right Mm -hmm. that's That's so powerful all right well my last question is and i know that you're somebody who is uh also a hope dealer uh is how do you choose joy i try to uh wake up every morning and say a prayer that uh centers me in a really special way i learned it from one of my heroines a woman who now lives in uh in rwanda she's burundian her prayer every morning is lord let your miracles break forth every day and let me not be an obstacle in any day Mm -hmm. in any way 
And that just centers me and kind of gives me a joyful spirit. I will say that probably what makes me the most joyful is the playlist of listening to music. And I have different songs I listen to uh, that, uh, depending on what I really need, whether I need to be calmed down or whether I need to be energized. And, um, you know, that's that playlist has changed since I've come to Nashville and gotten to know a number of the performers. Uh, but uh Probably the, the the song now that uh, that just brings me the greatest joy is listening to C.C. Winans, who's a former Belmont trustee and has become a dear friend. Uh, she has she her rendition of the song, The Goodness of God. Oh, so good. Just, it just makes me feel so joyful when I hear that song. I tell pe- I've told people at Belmont that uh, I listen to it whenever I've come out of a bad meeting or something that has really irritated me, that it just kind of recenters me and gives me that sense of joy. And so now if anybody hears me playing that song on the on campus, they think, <laughs> oh, was I in that last meeting? <laughs> but it's just, it's so inspiring. Uh, she sang it uh, live at my inauguration and, uh, and wow. the whole place just was, you know, overcome with that sense of, of joy. And it's a, it's a memory I'll never forget. Wow. That is amazing. Yeah. We actually, we sing that song at our church all the time and, uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful song and her rendition of it is just incredible. So, yeah. well, Greg, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for being here and thank you for how you are just letting hope abound. Well, thanks. It's been a great joy to be with you. Thanks for all you do and good luck with those kiddos of yours. I hope you loved this conversation with Greg as much as I did. Please let us know on social media what you liked or if there was something that you learned. You can find me at Still Being Molly or at Can I Laugh Pod wherever you get your socials. And would you take a moment and head on over to whatever podcast app you're listening to and click that subscribe or follow button and leave a review of the show. That really does help us to get the show out there and to know how the show is impacting you and what you're liking and what you're loving. And it just really means a lot. As always, thank you to the team at Third Wheel Media for producing the show. Thank you for tuning in week in and week out. And we'll see you next week. In the meantime, I hope something this week makes you laugh till you cry. Bye. Bye.